The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Hey, happy Palm Sunday, everybody. I don't know if you, is that, what's the traditional greeting? Hosanna? <laughs> like on Easter, it's he is risen, he is risen indeed, right? And so Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest? Like, do we want to start something here? I don't know. But uh, welcome to Fathom. My name's Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. Glad that you're joining us this morning. If you're online with us, good morning. We're glad to have you as well. If you brought your Bible, and I hope you did, would you open it up to Matthew chapter 21? Uh, Matthew chapter 21 is where we will be. Uh, you can open a hardback black Bible. You'll find one underneath every chair to the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament, chapter 21. You can open a phone or a tablet. If you're online, you can click that little Bible tab, but I would love for you to uh, see this uh, text to read the story along with us this morning, Matthew 21. Uh, so today is Palm Sunday, uh, which is historically been the, the Sunday where the church observes uh, the start of kind of what we call Holy Week or uh, or Passion Week. This is the beginning of us kind of observing the last week of the, the life of Jesus Christ. And, and so depending on how you were raised, like depending on what kind of church you may have gone to or denomination you were a part of, or maybe listen, this, maybe this is your first Palm Sunday. Like maybe this is your first, like, that's awesome. But if you were raised in a denomination that was a little bit higher denomination, you may have, uh, observed Lent, which is the season of 40 days leading up to Holy week, the week that we're in, uh, that is inaugurated by Ash Wednesday. Um, and then, it, and then it would come to Palm Sunday, which is today followed by Monday, Thursday, which, uh, Thursday of this week, which is kind of the traditional celebration of the Last Supper. And uh, that's sometimes celebrated with a communion service or even like a foot washing service because Jesus washed the feet of his disciples on Thursday of Passion Week. Um, and then on to Good Friday, uh, where we remember the crucifixion and then Resurrection Sunday or uh, also known as Easter, uh, which we'll celebrate next week. So Holy Week uh, or the Passion Week is, is really a big deal. I mean, I know, I know it feels like it's, it's a big deal. Uh, if you were to read all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one-third of those four books combined covers the last week of Jesus' life. A third of all the material we have about Jesus of Nazareth in the Gospels covers the last week of his life. That's how big a deal it is. Um, now, here at Fathom, uh, we, we do Holy Week uh, a little differently uh, than, than maybe you were raised, but we start uh, this today. But, but on Friday, we will have a Good Friday service. So let me just put this up here. Good Friday is happening here in this room at 6.30 p.m. There is child care for five or under, but if your kids are uh, above five, uh, bring them. Like th- we're, I promise you that it will be a, an interactive service for children and adults. And you're not going to miss this because you're not going to want to miss this because Good Friday, it's, it's one of my favorite services of the year. I mean, it really is one, genuinely one of my favorite services of the year because uh, we, we call it a service of darkness. Okay, it's not going to feel peppy. It's not going to feel lighthearted. It's going to feel heavy. As we look at the death of Jesus Christ, as we look at the horrors of the cross of Christ, we need to reflect on those things. 
We need not fast forward over the cross so that we can get to the exaltation of Christ in the resurrection. We need to spend some time sitting in the suffering of Jesus. So that's what we're going to do on Friday. I would invite you to that. And then, of course, next Sunday is Easter. And I just want you to know we're doing uh, our same two services. We're going to add more chairs. All right. We apparently should have done that this morning, but uh, we're going to add more chairs, uh, 845, 1045 kids at both services. There's full kids ministry at both services and, and the baptisms in between those services. So just want to invite you to that as well. Now, today is Palm Sunday, okay, Palm Sunday. And I want you to know that in the seven-year history of our church, since we started Fathom Church seven years ago, I have never preached a proper Palm Sunday sermon. Just haven't ever done it, all right? Uh, we, we, we just haven't, I, I don't know why. I don't know why. So don't ask me. I'm not sure why. I've never preached the triumphal entry, uh, but today all of that is going to change. So we're going, thank you. Somebody's happy that I'm doing something traditional. Okay. We're going to look at the triumphal entry specifically from Matthew's account. Uh, and this is Jesus coming into Jerusalem on Friday. We'll look at the, the crucifixion account. And then next Sunday, we'll dig into uh, Christ's resurrection. So if it, I just want to encourage you, if at all possible, try and join us all three points this week. If you're, if you're able, try and come all three points because this is a journey. You'll, you'll, you will see that this actually leads into next week. Uh, you'll feel how all of those fit into um, together. So here we go. Let's get to work. Goodness gracious. I'm, that was the longest non-introduction introduction I've done. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse one. Follow along in your text. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage. To the Mount of Olives, olives uh, that Jesus then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, "Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, "The Lord needs them, and He will send them at once." Okay, let's stop there. This is the scene. This is a famous scene. If you're familiar with church at all, you probably know this scene. But Jesus and his disciples for many uh, chapters at this point have been on a journey to Jerusalem. Actually, since essentially Matthew 16, they've been journeying to Jerusalem. And Jesus has been crystal clear on this journey. He has been crystal clear that he was going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. That's what he, he's made his intentions known all throughout the text, but his disciples, they either didn't get it or they didn't buy into it. They, for some reason, they don't get that he's actually going to die or they haven't bought it. They're just like, nah, that must just be hyperbole. He, t- he speaks in parables all the time. He must be telling another parable. Jesus certainly isn't going to suffer and die. That's not on their brains as they're going into Jerusalem. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the king. And kings rule. They don't die. That's not what's going to happen here. And this is going to be the key for us understanding our text this week. You see, Jesus' disciples, his disciples, they do believe that he is the Messiah. But they have misplaced expectations. They have misplaced expectations about how he was going to be the Messiah. They believe that he is, but they're going to miss the boat on the how that was going to play out. The people of God at this time, so the Israelites at this time, they were on the lookout for their Messiah. 
They had their eyes open. They were looking for the Messiah, for their deliverer, for their savior, for their king. They were looking for the one who would come and save them from all the pain and all the oppression around them. They had eyes for this. And Jesus is going to, in this entry, this triumphal entry, he's going to give them a ton of clues that will show that he is indeed that one, that Messiah. But it's just not going to play out the way that they expect to it. They have misplaced expectations. And so the text says that we just read those first five verses or four verses or three verses, whatever it was. The text just said that Jesus came to the Mount of Olives. It came to the Mount of Olives, which is actually an important location, not just because on Friday he's going to go back to the Mount of Olives and that's where he will be betrayed. That's what we think of when we think of Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane that's in that Mount. But also this is a clue to us as to what Jesus is doing today, because the prophet Zechariah hundreds of years earlier had prophesied that the future Messiah or Mashiach in the, in the Hebrew, Mashiach, that Messiah, who was going to bring all of the nations to God, to the God of David, he would stand on the Mount of Olives and look out over Jerusalem. That was the prophecy in Zechariah. So if you're an ancient Jew, we don't catch that. But if you're an ancient Hebrew, you would likely be familiar with the words of the prophet Zechariah. Okay, and and you would know Jesus showing up at the Mount of Olives. There's rumors of him being a Messiah. Oh, wait a second. I think somebody's talked about this before. Jesus is giving a hint. He's giving a clue here. Yes, I am the Messiah. I'm going to stand on the Mount of Olives and I'm going to look over Jerusalem. That's the first clue. Now, they come to the Mount of Olives, okay? And then Jesus decides that the last couple of miles into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives should be ridden on a donkey. So he sends his disciples to go find a donkey, okay? Now, this isn't Jesus being tired, Right? They've walked a lot of miles. He's not like, you know what? The last couple miles, I just want to kick back on a donkey, kick back on a mule, kick back on a, I'm not going to say it, but you could, yeah, right? This isn't him wanting to rest. No, this is another clue. And Matthew will actually explicitly remind us of this one in verses four and five. So look at your text again. Verse four. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So this, again, is, a, is another reference to Zechariah. Those words are from Zechariah as well, all right? Uh, and this one is explicitly quoted, a direct quote by Matthew, and it's the second clue. The first clue was that he would stand on the Mount of Olives and he would look out over Jerusalem. The second clue is that he is going to ride in on a donkey. See, Jesus is doing all these things intentionally. He's making a claim about who he is. Your king is coming. Your king is coming to you. Now, here's where it gets interesting, or at least I thought it was interesting, and you have to listen to me because I have a face mic. We know historically historically at this point, that right about the same time Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, Pontius Pilate, who will oversee the trial of Jesus this week, he is coming into Jerusalem as well. But Pontius Pilate uh, is coming in from the west entrance of Jerusalem on a white horse, while Jesus is coming in from the east entrance of Jerusalem on a donkey. Now that seems backwards, 
right? That seems backwards to me. Uh, The king, the Messiah coming in on a donkey, that's not epic at all. This doesn't feel epic at all. This is not how you would write a triumphal entry. If you take literature classes, they don't teach you this. This is bad writing, Matthew. Bad writing, Zechariah. Sorry, Matthew's just quoting Zechariah, right? Like the, uh, and then the king came in on a donkey's colt. That's what it said, which means the donkey's colt. He didn't even come in on the donkey, came in on the colt. The colt is the young donkey, all right? Not even like a grown-up donkey. He's coming in on like a teenager donkey. Oh, I see what's going on. They, maybe, maybe they're like, oh, I see here. This is strategic. This is a strategic move. Like maybe he's coming in on a donkey as kind of a bait and switch, right? He's about to Trojan horse the Romans. He's coming in on a donkey all humble and looking meek. And then he's going to call an army and then he's going to take over Rome. Like that's what's going on here. See, if I was writing the story, that's how I'd write it. Or I I would write a story called the triumphal entry like this. I'd start with the mode of entry. First of all, Jesus gets the stallion, all right? A white horse. That's what I want, or a black one, just give him a man horse, right? Just give him like a big boy stallion horse, all right? And then I expect Jesus, like if I'm writing the triumphal entry, I'm expecting him to show up at dusk, all right? Magic hour. You see those heat waves coming up off of the horizon, right? And he's on this magnificent steed coming in in slow-mo, warhorse style. Every time a hoof hits the sand, boom, like a plume of dust everywhere, That's how I want to see Jesus triumphantly entering Jerusalem with a scarf on, all right? Blowing in the wind. Like, that's how I want the... This is not a triumphal entry we're reading here. I'm expecting, like, Shrek and the donkey to show up at this point. (laughs) This is not how the story should be written. And actually, John's gospel in this account comes up with this. Like, it picks up on the absurdity of this moment because right after the prophecy about this donkey's cult, in John's gospel, John says this. I'll put it up on the screen. His disciples did not understand these things at first. You think? (laughs) Here comes your king riding on a humble beast of burden. But this is a clue, y'all. The way he comes in is a clue about the Messiah that, listen, everybody missed. Everybody missed. You see, the Messiah who would overthrow the oppression, the oppressors, of God's people, he would deliver them from the Romans. He would. He would save his people. He should have come in riding on a war horse, but, but rather Jesus enters humbly, humbly on a donkey, on a beast of burden, unlike Pilate who shows up on a horse. And Jesus actually does what they thought he was going to do. They just had misplaced expectations about how he was going to do it. So we've got to keep going because it, it, it gets harder. It gets harder. Verse six. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed. So they go and get the donkey, right? They brought the donkey and the colt, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. I don't know how he sat on both. I don't know. I, seriously, people like commentators were like, we're not sure what, if Matthew's just confused here or what. So that's what the book says. I think he's on the cult. Number eight, verse eight. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and, uh, and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna 
in the highest. Now, this is the scene, y'all. We just sang that song. This is the scene that birthed that song. Hosanna in the highest. Uh, this is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, and rightly so, but, but I think we miss some of it lest we unpack it historically. So let's do that. Let's work through this, okay? It's the Passover. It's the Passover feast and festival. And so the masses of people are migrating. They're taking a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast for this week. And so as they are making this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem at this point had approximately 70,000 residents. But during the Passover, some reports say that the city would swell to over 250,000 people. A city of 70,000 swelling to almost a quarter million of people. And listen, I have personally been to Jerusalem. And let me tell you, even today, that city feels really tight. Even today, it feels like you're just kind of squished into the city of Jerusalem, let alone with 250,000 people walking into the city for a feast. So you have to picture that scene in your mind, okay? Jesus is coming into Jerusalem for the Passover feasts with tens of thousands of people shuttling their way through the gates. That's what's the scene here. And then he gets up onto a colt, onto a donkey, mounts that thing and starts riding alongside of this crowd. Now his fame has grown at this point. Most of these people, if you're Jewish and you're living in this region, you've heard of Jesus. You've heard of this man who can multiply fish and loaves who can heal people of diseases they've had since childhood, who could, goodness gracious, raise people from the dead, call people back from the grave. You've heard of this guy. He's wandering in on a donkey and he's walking through these crowds. You just imagine they're so pressed up on him, surrounding him, and the crowd starts spreading their cloaks on the ground before him. Now, this is like rolling out the red carpet at a certain level. Right? They're, they're making like showing him honor and such. But even more so, this is another clue. If you knew your Old Testament, which most of us don't, they, they would have known 2 Kings chapter 9 at this point. Because in 2 Kings 9, the astute Jew would have remembered that there was a king named King Jehu. And when he was proclaimed king in opposition of an evil king, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, right? And if you're pregnant with a girl, there's a name you might want to consider biblically, okay? Jezebel, you know that name. Well, after Jehu becomes king in place of Ahab and his queen Jezebel, after his anointing, the text says, every man took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps and they blew the trumpet and they proclaimed Jehu is king. So this, laying out your coats before the coming king, before the coming Messiah, is a sign of loyalty. It's not just the red carpet. It's a sign of fidelity. Here comes the king, pledging their loyalty to this new messianic king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's another clue. The cutting of branches. This is another clue, people. It's not just like, oh, we ran out of coats, so let's get some leaves, right? Right? The branches mean something. They're likely uh, a little bit of a reference to the Maccabean revolt. If you know your intertestamental history, in be- that's it, that means in between the testaments, okay? Between Old Testament and New Testament, there's a thing called the Maccabean revolt. And the Maccabees, this is something that Hebrews still celebrate today, right? They celebrate the festival of lights, the Maccabees, all right? 
And, and the Maccabean revolt, the palm branches represented something. It was a symbol to Rome that God's people were no longer going to be under their occupying rule. They pull those branches down and they start waving them and laying them before Jesus. And it is revolting. That's like standing up and putting your fist up. That's, by, that's like taking a knee during the anthem. That's what's going on here. To the Roman Empire, you aren't going to win this one. We've got the king. We've got the branches. We're laying out our coats. Here he comes. And then they start shouting. The text says, Hosanna, Hosanna. That is a transliteration of an Aramaic word, and it's best translated, save us. Save us. Save us, King of David. They're, they're not doing this merely sentimentally, okay? This isn't just like a catchy Hillsong tune that they're like, yeah, sing it, Hillsong. This is a battle cry. It's a battle cry. Save us, son of David. David, they, they mentioned the son of David. David is the king par excellence when it comes to God's people. So by saying, save us, son of David, king, they're, they're, they're coronating him. They're saying, you're the Messiah. You're the king. People are calling out a divine blessing on their expected deliverer. But they're gonna be shocked because Jesus is gonna subversively redefine how he will save them. Again, they had misplaced expectations. All these clues are here and yet they missed it. So let's finish our text, verses 10 and 11. I will apply this, so stay with me, verses 10 and 11. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowds said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. All right. All this commotion about Jesus, right? On a donkey and the coats and the palm branches and the shouting. This all causes the whole city of Jerusalem, it says, to be stirred up. Or what I think is better translated, the word shaken. It's shaken up. There's this seismic shock felt in the city. Those 70,000 residents of Jerusalem as word of a true royal messianic figure, it ignites them, all right? And then note that the residents of Jerusalem, they're like, who is this? We heard about the clues. Did you hear he was looking out from the Mount of Olives? Yeah, I heard that. Heard he rolled in on a, on a donkey, not a horse. Whoa, that's like Zechariah, right? Yeah, for sure. People were laying their coats. People were laying palm branches. They're hearing this, those 70,000 residents in Jerusalem, they're murmuring, who is this? Who is this? And then the crowd of pilgrims who were there, the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of them who walked in, who witnessed, who laid their coats down. They say, this is Jesus, the prophet from Galilee, Nazareth. That's who this one is. He is highly regarded by the people at this point. He has the masses on his side at this point. And that's the triumphal entry. That's our text for today. That's what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. And here's where I want to drill down because it's really important to note this. In our passage, the crowds get it right. 
they identified Jesus correctly. And the crowds get it wrong. How can you get things so right while simultaneously getting things so wrong? That's where I want us to drill down on this. They get it right in that they identify Jesus as the Messiah. Here he comes. This is the one we've been waiting for. All of the things point to this. All of those signs. It's the Messiah. Save us. Save us, son of David. This is our king. This is our king. The crowds get it right, and the crowds also get it wrong. See, again, they have these misplaced expectations. See, they had an expectation about how Jesus was going to function as king. They had that expectation. They had an expectation about how the Messiah, Meshiach, was supposed to save them. They had that expectation. They had that expectation, and listen, they were dead wrong. They were dead wrong. See, their hope is in the enthronement of Jesus. And they're calling out divine blessing on their expected deliverer. But, and, and listen, they will be delivered, but by a suffering servant rather than a conquering king. In this moment, Jesus is their Christ, but in just a few days, he will be a criminal and be treated as a criminal. And so I think the point of this passage in the triumphal entry is not the voice of of the crowd shouting Hosanna. I don't think that's the actual point of this passage, them correctly identifying the Messiah, but rather I think it's the residents of Jerusalem who in all the commotion of Jesus' triumphal entry ask this question, who is this? Who is this? This is the key question in this text. Who is this? If you know Matthew's gospel, I think this is actually the key question in his gospel. Who is this? And frankly, I think this is the key question for each and every one of us. This is the question. Who is this? I want to show you a couple more places in the gospel of Matthew before we finish up where I think this is the key question. I'll put these up on the screen. You can write them down or get there if you want to, but let's go to Matthew chapter eight, verses 23 through 27. Let me show you a couple of these. Here's what it says. And when Jesus had got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves but Jesus was asleep. And they went and they woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And Jesus said to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. So this is a famous passage. Jesus calming the storm. We've read this before, but I'll, let me make a couple of notes about this passage, okay? Jesus and his disciples are on a boat. Storm shows up that is so legit that his disciples freak out, right? Some of these guys are trained professional fishermen. I always make the joke. If the guys who are freaking out on the boat 
work and live on boats, it's time to freak out, right? Abandon ship, that kind of moment. But, but they run to Jesus. They wake up Jesus. By the way, the guy who made his living on dry ground, okay? But they run to Jesus. And, and did you see their words? Save us. Remember what Hosanna meant? Save us. But they had an expectation. See, they had this expectation about Jesus, and their expectation wasn't meeting a storm. Their expectation wasn't meeting a storm, and this is so important to note, okay? Jesus is with them on the boat, and they still go through the storm. This did not meet their expectations. Just because you got Jesus in your boat does does not mean you're not going to face storms, even terrifying storms. But their expectation wasn't this storm, so they run to Jesus, and Jesus, he gets up, he rebukes the wind and the seas, and there was a great calm, is what the text says, and the disciples marvel, and they ask, what sort of man is this? In other words, in response to their misplaced expectations, they ask, who is this? Who is this? I I seriously found like five or six of these in the text this week as I was digging through Matthew. Let me give you one more because we don't have time for that. But one more. Um, In Matthew 16, there's this incident with Jesus and Peter that you will most likely know about if you've been in church for a minute. Now, if you've been also at Fathom for a little bit, you know that I'm very hard on Peter. Okay, Matthew 16 is this moment with Peter because he's I'm hard on him because he's always screwing stuff up right? I mean, he is just always messing things up in the New Testament. I feel like when I get to heaven, if he's allowed to, he's going to punch me in the face. (laughs) I don't know if he's allowed to, all right, but I'm just saying, like, I think that's what will happen. But here's the instance in Matthew 16. I'll put it up on the screen. Verse 13 says, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they responded, hey, some say John the Baptist." Others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. 15, Jesus said to them, but, but who do you say that I am? So this is Jesus, I think, pressing on them, the who is this question, right? He's asked, who do people say that I am? And they're like, ah, there's some unconvincing answers out there, Jesus. We read the textbook. We think that there may be a prophet, maybe somebody else. Then he's like, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? There's this awkward silence. Crickets. But not Peter, right? Not Peter. Peter doesn't need to think about things. He just starts talking. Look at verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. Peter's best sentence in all of the scriptures. And Jesus answers him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that's his full name, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Peter nails it. Jesus even says it, like God revealed this to you. You didn't come up with that. God showed you who that is. But then here's the thing, right on the heels of this, okay, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, I got to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to head to Jerusalem, which we are celebrating today, him entering Jerusalem. I've got to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be put on a cross and I'm going to be killed. And Peter keeps talking. (laughs) Peter can't have this, right? 
And instead of being confused and quiet, he's confused and talks. And so he gets loud again in verse 22. Look at verse 22. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather on the things of man. Peter rebukes Jesus. Why? Misplaced expectations. Listen, kings don't die on crosses. Kings send people to crosses. In Peter's mind, do you know who was going to die upon Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem? Romans. Let the heads roll. Rome is going to die when the Messiah comes to town. Peter had an expectation for Jesus. And just like the crowds on Palm Sunday, he gets it right. And he gets it wrong. You're the son, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Get behind me, Satan. So I think this is unbelievably applicable to each one of us because that question, who, who is this? Is the question that's posed to each one of us. Who is this? Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? And just be careful because I think so many of us get it right and we get it wrong. And I want to just suggest that it's because of misplaced expectations in our life, right? Like we have expectations for how Jesus is supposed to work. And then when he doesn't work that way, we freak out. We aren't all that different from the disciples on that boat, right? Because we don't expect Jesus, once he gets in our boat, to bring about storms in our lives, we get Jesus in the boat. We want victory. We want smooth sailing, crystal clear waters. But has that been anybody's experience with a relationship with Jesus? Testify to me if it has, but, but I haven't met anybody like this. Since becoming a Christian, okay, I've been a Christian for over 20 years. Since bowing the knee to King Jesus, here's what's happened. Just a short list. My parents got divorced after more than 20 years of marriage. My wife suffered with a chronic illness that still lingers and haunts her. We lost our first child to miscarriage. I've been betrayed by close friends. I fought in darkness, depression, and panic attacks. I've had my sin publicly exposed for people to see. Since following Christ, I've, I've sat in hospital rooms begging with God to heal sick children. I've been to funerals of people who took their own life far too early. I've sat in counseling sessions begging spouses not to pursue with divorce. And in all these things, I have to wrestle with the question. Every one of those moments, I had to wrestle with the question, who is this that I'm following? Jesus, this isn't how it's supposed to go. This is not what I expected. And we're not that different from Peter or those crowds on, on Palm Sunday either. 
Because if we're truly honest, we really want Jesus as the conquering king. Not the Jesus who's going to suffer and die and then say to us, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, the crowd on Sunday morning, they're chanting Hosanna. Hosanna to the son of David. They're chanting that Sunday, but, but they would be chanting a different message on Friday. The same 250,000 people would be chanting because Pontius Pilate, who rode in on that white horse, he asked the crowd what he should do with the man called King of the Jews. What do you want me to do with your Messiah? And they don't chant, Hosanna, save us, son of David. They, they chant, crucify him. Crucify him. See, their expectations were shattered. And they couldn't see how a suffering Jesus could save them. They couldn't see past that. They couldn't understand how Jesus could be king, could actually be the Messiah, only to die in such a way. Because the promise of the scripture is that it's not that you will understand all of what God's up to in your life. It, it, the promise of scripture is that you will love it when it's finished. The way I illustrate this is this. Uh, it's like those house flipping shows on HGTV. You seen these things? They're awesome. Okay. Um, they're great. Yeah. Other than the fact that they certainly foster delusions of grandeur, right? In every single one of us. Right, man, if I just, you're like, you're watching it. Tell me, I'm, tell me I'm a liar on this. You're just watching it and you're like, oh man, if I just like blew out that wall, <laughs> this bathroom could become a master suite. They did it in 30 minutes. I could probably do that. 12 trips to Home Depot later. All you've got is a wrecked house and you're calling a contractor, right? Tell me this is, tell me I'm not a liar, all right? But on these shows, like, uh, you know, Chip and JoJo walk in. If you don't know who Chip and JoJo are, God bless your ministry, okay? <laughs> I don't even know they're doing this anymore. They're bankrolling us, breaking our houses down all the way, right? Like, they're just taking it. But Chip and Joe, they walk into a legit dump. Like, the house is barely standing, right? It's just unbelievable. Barely standing up, boards on the windows, blood stains on the carpet kind of houses. And, and, and they're like, what? There's shiplap? This is great! <laughs> Which... I'd just love to know what shiplap actually is, because I think that's a fancy talk for wood. <laughs> I'm pretty sure of it, but I've got some in my house, so I don't know, you know? But unless you've got the kind of eye for this sort of thing, like you're watching that show going, like, I don't know how they could possibly do anything salvageable with this dump. How are they going to do this? But then you know the problem with that is you don't have the eye for it. You don't have the eye to see the finished project, product. See, we have an expectation, but you just can't judge things on their first appearance or even when they're midway done. But until it's all finished and they like reveal the thing and they pull those th and you're like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. It's because the designer has a better plan than we could ever imagine. And see, we make the mistake of looking at our lives like we look at a half-finished house. I think that's unlivable. That's not where I want to live. And we think we know the end result when we really don't.
because the promise of the scripture is you'll love it when he's done with it. See, I think it all comes down to misplaced expectations. I can tell you story after story, church, people that I've known, people that I've walked with, people that I love, who who were doing the Christian thing, okay? They were doing the Christian, they were at church, they were in studies, they were reading their Bible, they were fasting, they were doing the thing, okay? But they weren't doing it simply to know and love Jesus, but rather it was because they really actually wanted something from him. See, in the back of their minds or the back of their hearts, there was this expectation. Maybe they never even spoke it. But they would think, God, you just, you better deliver on this thing. You better deliver on this thing. And then when God didn't deliver on something that he never promised them, he wasn't their conquering king for the moment. But they, he showed up as the king who who asked them to come and die and bear their cross with him, well, they, they withered. I've seen it happen countless times. You know people like this. It might be you right today. But Jesus' message, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Listen, that's not seeker friendly. I know, I know we want to package it like that. I know we want to say, Jesus, come to Jesus. You, you want to say this to your neighbors and to your friends, to your family and to your coworkers. Hey, just come to church with me. Jesus will bring all your hopes and dreams true. But he never promises you wealth. He never promises you health. He doesn't promise you a marriage. Doesn't promise you children. Doesn't promise you retirement. He doesn't promise you a long life. He promises none of these things. He comes into the city riding on a donkey, humble, and he says, I'm going to give myself for you so that then you can give yourself to me. I will be your savior. I will be your king, but it's going to be on my terms. And listen, intimacy with him is created not in the good times, but in the hard times. On the donkey, not on the stallion. It's in the pain. It's in, it's in the fight. It's in the struggle. It's in the fires that we find ourselves refined. So my friends, if you feel less than triumphant on this Palm Sunday morning, my message to you is don't give up on this. Don't give up. Don't quit when your expectations aren't met. Press on. Press on in believing that on the other side of the cross, a resurrection is coming. We don't start with the donkey only get to get to the crucifixion with no hope on the other side. We have the benefit of the whole story, my friends. May we never neglect the first half, but let's not lose heart. There is a resurrection. Don't judge the half-finished house. Your greatest hope is yet to come. So who is this? Who is this guy? He's the Christ. He's the son of the living God. Hosanna to the son of David, to the king. Let's pray together. Father, this is a text that 
that many of us are familiar with. It's a story that many of us know. And yet it so clearly, for me at least, points out where I've got misplaced expectations. It points out where where I honestly have to struggle with my pride. Because in so many areas of my life, Jesus, if I'm really truly honest, I would say, why are you doing it this way? Why don't you do it that way? Which in a sense is putting you on the, the, the on trial. It's saying, I know better than you, God. And that's pride. That's arrogance. That's sin. Lord, I pray we would see with the eyes that we have shown in the scriptures that we know your life, your death, and your resurrection work together. Help us, Lord, where there's there's expectations that are unmet, that are misplaced. Help us where we've been just crushed by our experience and have even withered and wilted and, and ran from you. Lord, you don't promise that we're gonna see everything clearly as we're journeying, but you do promise that we're gonna love it when it's done. Give us those eyes this holy week as we march to the cross and remember your suffering. But as we long and hope for the miracle of resurrection. Who is this? This is Jesus. Help us to see him today. So we pray in his name and in the power of the spirit. Amen. Amen.